in my trial, nothing was allowed of domestic violence. Nothing was allowed about the abuse because he was on trial. He wasn't on trial. I was. And um, the only thing I really clearly remember saying is they asked how I felt when he died. I said I was relieved. Not because he died, but because I wouldn't be hurt no more. And that's where they stopped me. didn't allow me to go into more detail. So, of course, the jury not hearing any defense, because also my lawyer said it's it would be a motive, not a defense, if he brought up all the abuse. So we weren't able to bring it up. A Living Chance is a podcast created by the members of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners that shares the stories of people serving life without parole in the state's women's prisons and educates the public about life without parole sentencing or the other death penalty, as it is called by people in prison. This podcast features the stories of people currently serving life without parole, formerly incarcerated people or prison survivors and advocates and organizers in the fight against life without parole. Welcome to episode two of A Living Chance, a podcast of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. I'm Amina, formerly incarcerated and survivor of domestic and state violence. And I have Tara here with me. Tara, you want to tell um, folks a little about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Tara, and I am also formerly incarcerated at the young age of 18, was recently released in November 2017. I've been a member of California Coalition for Women Prisoners since 2009. Since I've been released, I've been able to take on a more active role, and I continue to support. And I am Adrienne Skye Roberts, a longtime volunteer, organizer, and legal advocate with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. We'd like to also make a disclaimer in regards to some of the content we're going to be discussing, the stories that we're going to be sharing regarding specific forms of violence that our members and ourselves have experienced may be very graphic and disturbing. Before we get started, we want to just start by sharing a little more context of women's prisons in California. There are two main women's prisons in the state of California. Central California Women's Facility, Uh which is where you were, right? right? And that's in Chowchilla in the Central Valley. That is actually the largest women's prison in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just let that sink in. (laughs) The largest women's prison in the world. In California. Is in California. California. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean? What does that tell us? Right. Totally. And that was built in like 1990. And then there's the California Institution for Women, which is east of L.A. in Corona. And that was the first women's prison in the state. And that was built in 1987. Um, And then... There are women who are in some medical facilities also in Vacaville and in Stockton. And in 2013, Folsom State Prison, which is a men's institution, right, right, a pretty Mm -hmm. historic men's institution, created a section of their prison designated for women. And that was an attempt to deal with the overcrowding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So rather than releasing women, 
during this period of overcrowding, which is still continuing, the, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation created a wing in Folsom for women. What prisons have you been in? So I was originally um, shipped to Valley State Prison for Women in 2009. And I stayed at that prison until 2012 when um, that prison was slated to be converted into a men's prison. At that time, all of the women were told we would be relocating either to CCWF or CIW. We wanted to also explain a couple acronyms and prison terminology that you'll hear in different people's stories in this episode. So the first is R&R, which stands for Reception and Receiving. That's the place that folks get processed in and out of prison. Also 602. A 602 is an appeal by anyone in prison to appeal a decision, action, condition, policy, or regulation that, as the system says, quote, adversely affects their welfare. So folks 602 a lot of different decisions. They can 602 different officers and different policies as well. It's essentially the only avenue that people in prison have for trying to hold the system accountable, which is, of course, very difficult. And then the last thing is a 115, and a 115 is a disciplinary write-up that correctional officers issue to people in prison for breaking any sort of violation or policy, and they are handed out pretty liberally. So today we're going to be talking more about criminalization, the incarceration of survivors of abuse that are currently serving LWAP. We want to talk about the connections between those abuses, the intimate partner violence, and incarceration itself. And we're going to learn more about how deep these connections actually go. We want to share with you the parallel between intimate partner violence and state violence. Amina, you disclosed early on that you were a survivor of both, and I would love if you can share more about that. Sure. So prior to my incarceration, I was involved in a domestic violence relationship with my ex-husband, which ultimately led me to be sentenced and convicted because of my diagnosis of battered women's syndrome. So being in prison and um, having to witness and live with abuse all around me and being further oppressed and punished by the system is a form of state violence. So it's really important that we just emphasize so many times over that the majority of people that are serving LWAP sentences are women and transgender people that have been survivors of abuse that have these in their histories. And even according to the ACLU, nearly 60% of people in women's prisons nationwide and as many as 94% of some women's prison populations have a history of physical or sexual abuse before incarceration. These are some of the things that are never discussed prior to them being sentenced or going through their trials. It's something that just gets disregarded, and only their act is, is something that's kind of highlighted. Not to mention, many of the women that are currently serving LWAP sentences may have been the ones that kill their abusers in self-defense, or being present when the abuser kills someone while their own life was being threatened. And these precursor factors are not taken into account when even processing the, the trial and the sentencing. And that is something that is just really not serving our, our criminal justice system well. Now we're going to hear from some cis and trans women on the inside 
about their experiences surrounding being a criminalized survivor and the cycles of abuse that they endured. Um, If I look back and looking at my childhood, I come from, my mother was my first abuser. I never had any connection with a female. I always wanted it. I grew up thinking I was worthless. My voice didn't matter. I was a punching bag for my mother. very codependent. She wasn't capable of being a mother. So I was a par- I was a little mother to my brothers. I got into very codependent, toxic, abusive relationships with men. Again, told my voice didn't matter. You're a tool for me. You're then became a shell of a person. I learned to disassociate. I learned to be withdrawn. I learned to isolate my emotion and essentially out of fear. Um, paralyze my emotions at probably the age of, honestly, depending on the mood, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old. I think um, the main reason that um, I ended up being incarcerated, um, committing this crime, is because as a young child, I'm not using this as an excuse, but as a young child, from the age three and a half, four, off and on until I was 12, um, I was molested by um, two family friends. They were teenagers. Um, I stayed at um, their family's house um, five days a week while my mom worked because I was the youngest sibling. And these two um, teenagers molested me. And um, They told me that if I told that I would uh, end up in trouble, no one would believe me, I would be punished, I would get a whooping, that I was just a bad little kid, and I cried, and I remember telling um, the mother what had happened, and everything that the young men said came true. This is the, uh, well, we just moved to, uh, to Santa Clara, it was, uh, and it was just that summer that uh, I was watching. My, my stepdad was uh, beating my mother, so my dad never hit my mother. My dad is not violent, but you were violent in a rape. Um, so my sister was a little girl, and I had three brothers sort of just standing there, you know, and I went to help my mother. And... Instead, I want to call the police. And when the police came, my mother told the police that everything was all right. And really, it wasn't. Because the fight continued afterwards. And she told me, you never call the police. Never. You never allow the police in your business. There was The police would come out and say, hey, dude, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Anything wrong? Nope. Thank you. And go away. But yet, you know, once that door closed... You would have gotten it. You would have gotten it from him for making him embarrassed. So I, I never even thought of calling the police. What do you say? He was mean to me? You know, because didn't see no bruises. Didn't have black eyes. Well, nothing that they could see. Those are some very heavy realities that so many people do not want to face, but it's something we need to look at very square on and acknowledge the heaviness and and how it affects and continues to play out in, in people's lives. I mean, 
right now I have just so many different thoughts and, you know, my heart is racing just hearing it because I know throughout my own experiences of child abuse and racial abuse and so on and so forth that those factors early on in my childhood played a lot into my adulthood until I was able to recognize it. I mean, talking even just about the cycle of abuse, you know, it's it's something very heavily said about children that are in abusive situations. They they are taught early on, you know, the three shuts, right? The shut down, the shut up, or the shutouts. And these are something that these women, including myself, was taught to do. We didn't learn how to appropriately address when someone is hurting us or causing us harm. We 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 played it out in a, in a very disruptive, disturbing. It's just it's very ter- it's sad. It's sad. Just like violence is a a learned behavior, and a lot of the abusers they learned that behavior from most likely their parents too. So you have a that's the whole batterer's perspective and how people become batterers. The same for those that are um, on the on the receiving end or surviving that abuse learned that either watching their mother, watching their grandmother, watching their sisters endure that and thinking that it's okay to let a, a, another individual put their hands on you and knowing with that different with different cultures not calling the police is accepted and it's taught and um but mainstream society doesn't understand why you just don't call the police because they're not living in the same bubble that a lot of other folks are forced to live in. Yeah. I listened to Glennis, and Glennis, you know, as she's sharing, she's even still in that moment being very protective about her own accountability by saying, I'm not, I'm not making an excuse. I'm not making an excuse. And, and this is something that she is, has been taught to not say, look, I was, this was, this happened to me. Like, I was harmed. Someone hurt me, and I thought it was okay to hurt someone else because that hurt people hurt people, right? It's not so much as an excuse, but as a clear explanation into why you were doing the things that you were doing or why it was okay for you to get into an abusive relationship and, and intimate battering. I mean, that, that just goes to show if, if this is how someone who is supposed to love me most of all is treating me, of course, the next person as I'm, as I'm older in a relationship is supposed to treat me the same way. And this becomes acceptable behavior and and how this goes on and on. But the human spirit can only take so much. And to that point where where you act out violently because you can't suppress it for so long is something that could have been addressed with the right community support, with the right people on guard, with the right things on hand. And, And it's just, it's something that we need to start putting out there loud and clear. You know, a lot of a lot of these individuals, including myself, go into survival mode. And some of the the things that we commonly see with individuals that have complex trauma that, you know, ends up getting acted out in a violent or criminalized way. I mean, I just want to like talk about an individual and keep them anonymous, of course, but here she was at a very, very young age being raped and molested by her brothers and her father. And this little girl grew up and felt unprotected. 
So it was in her survival young little heart to join a gang because that gang was going to give her protection and no one was going to hurt her and so on and so forth. So the whole entire storyline of what comes with gang activity manifested in her life from selling drugs to, you know, carrying guns around. And this was something very subconscious, of course, but it took one drug sale gone bad where the individual that she was selling to attempted to rape her. And something clicked inside of her where it was like, I'm never going to be raped again. And then she killed that individual. And she's currently serving life without the possibility of the parole. And the, the, the problem with this isn't the fact that someone lost their life, because that's clearly a problem of the whole entire story. But there is also an originating problem, which was it was never addressed. The childhood that was lost behind being raped, being molested, being in the, in the violent streets of L.A., in the poor community, in a predominantly minority community where there wasn't support, there wasn't a lot of teachers even looking into the eyes of their children enough to care to say, why aren't you clothed properly? Why aren't you being fed? Why do you have these bruises on you? No one was stepping in. So this, this young little girl chose to become a gang member and felt this false sense of power that continued to play out destructively in her life. So, I mean, we look at that and we say, what survival instincts were at play there? Do you have any thoughts, Amina? I think everybody comes to a, a breaking point, a point where you say, I'm not going to be victimized no more. I'm not going to be victimized no more. I'm not going to repeat my past and decide to take a stand. That stand ultimately leaves many women in prison because it's like um, all those years of hurt and pain just come upon a person at one time and not knowing how to deal with it or even how to contain it, most times it ends up in the loss of another person's life. So the loss of their life results in the loss of another life. So from the, the gift of my, that my father gave me of uh, being a victim of child molestation, I then got the gift of um, being physically, emotionally, mentally, and verbally abused from my husband. And all that is from between the ages of 12 to 25. So for 13 years of my life, I was molded into the best daughter, the best um, mother, you know, because I, I had two very, very small children that I would have done anything to protect them, including not being able to walk away. I would have been able to, if I would have walked away, I would have had to leave my small children. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't have my mother killed. I couldn't have my sister killed. So I stayed, you know, because the first thing people want to know, well, why didn't she leave? At 25, after 13 years of mental, physical, emotional, verbal abuse, how do you even know that that's an option? There's something very strong. There's a strong message when we sentence individuals to life without the possibility of parole. There's not one individual that I know of personally that is serving LWAP that doesn't have a tattered past, that doesn't have a childhood that should have not been. And 
not on top of the fact that they already have these self-depreciating ideals about themselves, but then to be told you're going to be thrown away because you were you were you were trash from the beginning. And these thoughts are something that continues to play out, but it's really interesting how we need to really look at the individual for who they are today. And some of these women specifically are some of the most beautiful women that I have ever known because they have found their true selves. They have redefined who they were despite their past, despite their crimes, despite what the state of California is telling them they are. They're not placing themselves in a box, even if they are surrounded by barbed wire fences. So for for many years, a lot of women weren't even able to bring up evidence of domestic violence abuse or intimate partner battering and thus were sentenced to these LWAP sentences or much longer terms in prison. It wasn't until, I'm going to say relatively um, recently, that the courts began allowing the introduction of evidence that brought awareness to the fact that women had been abused and allowed these mitigating factors to come into play inside the courtroom. So we're going to take a couple minutes and listen to a few um, women behind the walls and hear about their stories regarding trial and the absence of abuse in their trial. And I was tried for the death penalty, so they actually sent investigators to Missouri. I'm from Missouri. I'm not a California resident. Um, to meet with like family members to find out about me and a history of me and whatnot. And during that investigation, there was a lot of information about um, domestic violence, like with my mother and father, and violence against me, and treatment towards me by my parents, and past uh, relationships that I've had that were violent. And um, that information was given to them, but my attorney never used it in any form, shape, or form to raise a defense for me. Also, my attorney made a deal with the DA to not bring up my escorting, and they would not bring up the fact that my victim also used to have escorts all the time in his, his past, because he was into money laundering and, es- and buying escorts. So the jury never knew that I was an escort, that I was arrested for prostitution. They never knew I walked into a sting operation, and they never got to find out that my boyfriend was my pimp. So none of this stuff was ever brought to be public knowledge to the jury, but the DA, the judge, and everybody knew about it but my jury. Even in the San Diego Union Tribune, I was referred to as an escort, but my jury was never received that information. Unfortunately, defendants inside the courtroom really don't even have a chance. It's not even about them. It doesn't matter if they've been victimized. What matters is the person that lost their life. So defendants never really get to disclose their past or what they've, what they've been through, and it's not even relevant. And that is the challenge. I believe that every individual case. It should not be universal. It should not be uniform. It depends on the circumstances, especially for women claiming domestic violence, the circumstances leading up to the crime that they committed. It should be evaluated, and it's not. Our court system typically indicates that you're innocent until you're proven guilty, but they already have an agenda set out for you, and The district attorneys and the judges have so much power, and 
they're so unethical and, you know, especially like behind chambers, they're just casually talking about lives just another, just another day, you know, in the courtroom, just another human being's life to hurry up and process and push through the paperwork so we can get to the next day at our day's work. And, and there's just this lack of, of insight that needs to be applied towards cases such as this. And if you even just look at our history, you know, when, it, when, when we're talking about, you know, m- women were once upon a time a man's property. And, you know, what he did with his property was his business. Now, that's something to say is still very ingrained in some of our cultural backgrounds. And when we are talking about abuse from a husband or an, an intimate partner, we're not talking about, you know, this, this person who hit my car. We're talking about my life is at stake here. And at one point, I really believed I was going to lose my life, and so I took matters into my own hand. None of that gets taken into account. None of that gets to be presented. And that's just something that keeps getting suppressed with the three shutouts, the shutdown, shut up, or shut out. And it's almost like, let's not acknowledge this whatsoever, because if we do, then we have to take these mitigating circumstances into account, and we just don't want to let go of the numbers that we need to make at the end of the day. I just want to make sure I highlight a point that you just made, too, about our history and the history of suppressing of women in general. And that fact rears its head in our courtroom when it comes to the sex, the sexism and gender discrimination when it comes to women. Women are still frowned upon for even having to be a defendant in a courtroom or or charged with, like, abandoning their children. So are given harsher penalties because. They're not in the kitchen with an apron on cooking a man's meal. And we see that even in the system, right? Mm-hmm. So even within prison, women are almost disrespectfully regarded by not just the male staff, but even the women's women. staff. Mm-hmm. The women correctional officers look at many of the other women as you are a poor representation of our gender. And this is something that plays out in the treatment and the way that they address our gender-specific needs, and so on and so forth. It's continuing to play a very significant role in how we even conduct ourselves in our professional capacities. People are sworn officers of not just the court, but also the system, and they're not carrying out their duties accordingly. They let those biases come up and express themselves outwardly every single day, and they do it so, 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 like sneakily, it's almost hard to prove, but we know what's going on. Right, we know what's Deep there. down, innately, we feel these biases are being played out and handled improperly. Our trans community also suffers through discrimination, whether it be by officers refusing to address them as they wish to be addressed, harassment, ridicule, vulgar, ridicule, vulgar statements, constantly going through their their rooms counting boxer shorts or anything else confiscating them and making them show proof that they're allowed to have them even physical abuse i was going to say yeah. a physical mm-hmm. physical abuse is very common especially oh you you think that you're a man and challenging them uh in aggressive manners is just completely inappropriate and very prevalent always something i would witness personally so transgender, I am a transgender. There are many transgenders here. 
and we are under constant scrutiny and attack and just to live our life as we normally would in the free world. So currently we have a 602 for something as simple as chest binders. That has gotten nowhere because nobody knows what to do with the 602. So it's been screened out, put back, screened out, put back. Um, so we're at a standstill where that's at. We do have an advocate within the prison and he's even scared to advocate outside of his parameters set by California Department of Corrections. But he does as much as he can for us. Um, an example would be going to pick up boxers from R&R. They just, the, the R&R staff shows our boxers to everyone. They don't do that with the, with the females in their little um, panties, you know, but they're constantly making comments to us. And some of the guys have facial hair and they make comments about the facial hair or the deep voice because of the shots. And we're just constantly under, under scrutiny. I think it's about time we explore the topic of gender discrimination and the way that women are characterized as either the motivator of the crime or just the stereotypes that surround women of being the mastermind or the black widow or the femme fatale. These are, these are labels that just need to be, you know, really explored for those, for those inaccurate messages that keep getting attached. I think the uh, system is harsher on women. I think a lot of women take the fall from the man, and the man gets to walk away scot-free. A lot of times, their time's reduced. They only get a couple years, and however, we're the ones sitting here with life without parole. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, of, a lot of women I know that are here as LWAPs are here behind a man, and they're free or they're their time was reduced, but yet they're going to live to die here. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. I was a battered woman, they have a police report where my boyfriend was being, um, got arrested for domestic violence on another woman. Um, they had a website of, of me, my escort website, in my boyfriend's name. My escort phone was in my boyfriend's name. And they knew that I was a link to him and I didn't give him up. In my case, it was in my, in my trial, it was, it was mentioned that I am lesbian, you know. Um, it didn't work. <laughs> Nothing played a big factor. It didn't help me. It just, they were just trying to use it as another negative against me as I learned, as I, as I just started replaying um, the whole court proceedings over and over in my head. It wasn't for me, for my benefit. It was actually another negative to get jurors or the judge to look at me in a certain manner and not a good one. And I think that with even with the public defenders, they know what to say and how that gets a reaction out of out of the jurors, but it's not for the defendant's benefit. Um, it just is just not right. It's just yeah. the system is just is just yeah not right. That's it. I thought it was being used to help me at first. I'm young and I'm thinking like, oh man, they're gonna see that I'm not into men, so they're not gonna try to link me with these guys right. or whatever. And right. I don't want no guy, you know. It was used against me, so in a court of law. <laughs> so you know. Um, it, it didn't help me one bit. So during my trial, the prosecutor said a lot of really um, prejudiced things about me. 
he called me a whore. He said I was a slut. He said, um, I, of course I had to be running things because that's the type of person I was. He used a lot of that in my trial. Um, it's called character witness, it, character something. And it was basically just him bad-mouthing me and saying she's this type of person. She's a slut. And I, I was called whore multiple times. Those stories sound eerily like many folks' interpretation of the first book of the Bible with Adam and Eve and how Eve manipulated Adam into biting the apple. And ultimately, it was the woman's fault because she's this huge manipulator who manipulates poor, helpless, defenseless men. Yeah, I mean, Mimi, what she was trying to talk about was the defamation of her character and how they were intentionally aiming to ruin her reputation, how they were selectively choosing to share facts that only highlighted her as a monster so that they can continue to win their case and convey to jurors that this person is someone that needs to be taken off the streets because she is a danger. Well, I know Mimi firsthand, and that woman is sweet as pie. And some of the things that she does is out of the pureness of her heart. And I know for sure that, that, that that's not the role she played because she doesn't even have that in her entire being. It's just not who she is genetically. It's not her genetic makeup to be this aggressive, monstrous, mastermind, black widow, femme fatale that these prosecutors continue to try to convey. They have to place the blame on somebody and they don't want it to be the men. That's why they're so harsher on women and attacking their moral character and their character and why they're most women they are they label them as the they're manipulators you know and they're always manipulating like they have the man by the balls and leading them to do all this other stuff so if it wasn't the woman had to do it yeah and I see that a lot it's coming up in a few of the women's their stories This is a quote by Amy. I was abused twice, once by my partner and now by the state. So the relationship between intimate partner battering and state violence is eerily similar. It's identical. Being inside, you suffer at the hands of guards, you suffer sexual harassment um, for women who are taken advantage of of certain guards. That's sexual abuse, verbal abuse, being talked down on, being um, cursed out or, you know, being hollered at. You're surrounded by abuse in your living quarters and guards are reluctant to do anything about it. Half the times the guards perpetuate more violence by setting other women up to become victim, other, other people's victims. And all of this abuse is state sanctioned. So the system is supposed to protect you. We have guards in prison that are supposed to protect the women, yet it is the opposite around. And unfortunately, there is no accountability. Unlike out here on the street where we have cell phones and we could record any, everything that's going on around us, we don't have cell phones in prison that we can walk around with and record this. So staff and guards are able to perpetuate this violence largely unseen. And even though there are cameras inside the institution, I'm, 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 a, I'm about 100 percent sure that they will be heavily monitored 
and a lot of the abuses that go on in, in there, we will never know about. And you know what? It's not just about the abuse that is is unwanted and pushed away, but the, the abuse that is coerced, right? So the fear of retaliation inside a prison system is more paramount than actually not seeing it coming. So the threat of someone retaliating against you is enough to make you willingly participate in sexual misconduct that you do not want just to make sure that further abuse does not come about. And that is really more so how the abuse of sexual uh, harassment and abuse takes place within the women's prison. It's quite interesting how, you know, when you are trapped inside, how, you know, the human spirit finds a way out. And within this population, our LWAP community, our transgender community, and all of the, the women as a whole have collectively come together and found ways to give back to a community that's most hurting. I've seen numerous LWAP women step up and begin teaching classes, empowering classes, educating classes, and healing classes within their own uh, units so that other women do not have to continue overlapping the trauma upon trauma because prison, being in prison, is a form of trauma. It is traumatizing. And so giving them healing and, and giving them back their voices is something that you see in these support groups, something that you see in these self-help groups. And it is, it is a way that they're finding their own power back and applying it in a way that no one has ever given to them. So that's something that, that is really beautiful that, you know, is coming out of the harm is, is that, that desire to turn it around for something better. And that's something the state of California can't touch, is the human spirit. With that being said, it's definitely something we will be exploring and talking about further. The women organizing, facilitating, and healing their communities within self-help groups and within education groups. Before we close, I want to play a quote from Michael, transgender male living in the Central California Women's Facility, sentenced to what we call the default LWAP. He is serving 13 years plus 50 years to life. This is very personal. Um, I experienced extreme abuse as a child, and I got through that. Um, I knew when I was sentenced to 13 years plus 56 years to life that I was going to get through that too. Um, I've lived through abuse, and I'm living through abuse today. Um, the difference is I'm more empowered. Um, I've healed from that. I'm not a victim anymore. And so I'm able to, one, endure it, and I'm, I'm thankful for the child that taught me to endure hard things. Um, but now I have a voice, so I'm able to stand up in it and not just go through it. And that's what I mean, like, I'm not a victim anymore. And for those people who are, then I stand up for them too. And that makes me stronger in it. Um, and it's important for me to do that because it is such a demonstration of my healing and of my growth. Um, my voice was taken a long ago, and um, today it's here. Intense. Very, very, very intense. And this discussion is something that needed to be had. 
I am just, you know, I'm just inspired. I'm inspired to continue doing the work that I do every day, to continue, you know, my work with California Coalition for Women Prisoners and, you know, fight the good fight. We got to keep doing this and keep reaching back and making sure we're pulling each other up and out. And I just want to send out a thank you to the folks we heard from today serving LWAP in California Women's Prison, Susan, Glennis, Mimi, Amy, Lynn, Tammy, and Michael. Also a shout out to Survived and Punished. Woo-woo! National Network to End the Criminalization of Survivors. You can find them at survivedandpunished.org. If you want to get involved in our fight against life without parole sentencing, please check out womenprisoners.org. You can also check out Drop LWOP, and that is D-R-O-P-L-W-O-P.com to sign our letter asking Jerry Brown to commute LWOP sentences and to sign individual petitions. One more you can check out is alivingchance.com to hear more from our incarcerated members and collaborators on this podcast.